Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Welcome to a Land Jam Short, the Skinny Willard. Yeah, I think, uh, Sanj, we're going to continue our rabbit hole into Vintage Seiko uh, with uh, my recent acquisition, the uh, 6105-8000 slash 8009, which I'm calling the Skinny Willard. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's another Seiko (laughs) down your... You're deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole with Seiko. It's an addiction. It's an addiction. I can't help but, it. But, you know, to be fair, this is a unique timepiece that you found. I, I I guess this this came somehow out of nowhere and you decided to just pull the trigger because it was a bit of a surprise, to be, let's be fair. Yeah. So, I mean, what is the 6105, right, 8000? So, in the history of Seiko divers, right, so you've got the first Seiko diver, which is the 62 Moss. So... In history, that's 1965. Then in 1968, they did the 6159 high beat diver, which is kind of the granddaddy design-wise to the Marine Master 200 and 300, kind of, you know, that line. And then in 1968, to replace the 62 Moss, they released the 6105 8000-9, uh, 8000 for Japan models, the nine, uh, 8009 for international releases, which we're going to call the Skinny Willard. Uh, and the Skinny Willard obviously is really related to the Captain Willard. Uh, the Captain Willard is what replaced the Skinny Willard, um, whereas the Captain Willard is kind of like an oblong um, asymmetrical case. The Skinny Willard is a symmetrical case, so it, it's a little, it's a bit smaller, it's a, li- uh, it's a bit less expansive, um, and to me, it's kind of underappreciated. Uh, are you familiar with this watch at all, or no? I mean, I'm so you know, you know, I'm way more familiar with the Captain Willard, and and you're right with saying that. I mean. I guess the skinny Willard is so the part of the reason why it's kind of oblong on the Captain Willard is, you know, a bit more protection on the watch itself and, and the crown, I guess, so that it doesn't bust the bezel or the dial when you go scuba diving, if I remember correctly. But the skinny Willard also protects the crown as well, but it's a bit more, I guess, uh, I guess a bit more tonneau case. Is that right? Yeah, it's got that whole uh, cushion style C case. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, similar to the Captain Willard, um, it does have a crown at four. It, it's got a built in uh, kind of crown protector, the way the, 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 uh, the case flares out. So it, it's consistent, but it's not as, you know, I, whereas the Captain Willard is, is a very, very big case and you definitely feel it and you, you'll definitely notice it on someone's wrist. 6105 being a bit more symmetrical is a, is a bit sleeker. It's, a, it's very comfortable to wear. Um, and the interesting thing is my, my neighbor um, who's in the watch industry actually has an original Captain Willard. Wow. And nice. Yeah. 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 He's, he's um, you know, I, I think he, he works for a local, uh, you know, watch or jewelry outlet uh, close by. So he, he, and he's a vintage Seiko collector himself. So he's got a Pogue. Uh, which he's trying to have uh, Spencer Klein service. And he's in conversation with him to get the, you know, in his queue somewhere to be done in two to three years or whenever Spencer's going to get to it. Um, and then he's got a, a, a mint, you know, Captain Willard. Um, you know, it, it, it's a beauty. It's an absolute beauty, but it's bigger. You know, you definitely, there is definitely a size and wear difference compared to the Captain Willard and the Skinny Willard. Um, so 
in some ways, you know, the Skinny Willard has its own advantages, uh, but obviously the Captain Willard is, is the one in Apocalypse Now. It's, it's distinctive. It's, it's, it's got a bigger presence. And most importantly for collectors, it's been recently reissued. Um, so it's kind of in everyone's mind right now. Um, interestingly enough, the Skinny Willard, you know, since 1968 or whatnot, has not actually been reissued by Seiko. Okay. It's never been revisited. Whereas every other watch that I mentioned, the 62 Moss, the 6159, High Beat, whatever, has all, you know, has been reissued or iterated on. The Interestingly enough, the Captain Willard has not. Um, uh, sorry, the Skinny Willard has not. So... It's kind of an it's it's a bit of a one-off, you know, and I feel like it's ripe for a reissue. I don't really know why they haven't done it. Um, Maybe it's in the pipeline. I mean, they just released you know the the, the Willard releases, right? Like then and several flavors of the dial colors. Like I believe yeah. green was it it's blue? Possible. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is these these Chinese factories that do uh, Seiko knockoffs. You know, like the San Martin guys. Are you familiar with those? The guys that do like the sixty-two Moss knockoff. Do I want to know these guys? <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is there's a company called Redune, R-D-U-N-A-E. Um, you know, look them up. They do, they do basically a faithful reissue of the Skinny Willard um, right. with, the, with the Seiko movement inside. And, you know, before, before you go off, you know, Spencer Klein, you know, the, the Seiko expert himself has a video review of these watches. And he's like, you know what? for 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 200 bucks or whatever it's it's a very very well built watch so mm. I, I mean whatever seiko's not doing someone else has picked up the slack and is executing pretty well because it's it's a really unique kind of design right it's classic seiko dive watch but it's 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 unique because it, it it's it's a different case but it still has the same dial and and hand and handset that evokes that captain willard um, and the interesting thing is it's got a sign crown. I see the original uh, Captain Willard had a sign crown. Uh, I believe it's the last model to carry a sign crown like this. So it's unique in that way. Um, Non-screw down. So uh, it's water resistance is, is despite not being a screw down uh, dive wash. Uh, but it's, other than that, it's very visually, you know, uh, clean Seiko, clean Seiko uh, diver. Um, the interesting thing is even for a relatively, you know, at that time, inexpensive service watch that, you know, GIs were buying at PXs, you're getting a watch that has uh, chromed, you know, loom plots. It's, it's, it's very, uh, it catches the light really well and the hands are, are reflective. Um, <clears throat> and it's got that stoplight seconds hand, which is again, another iconic Seiko uh, design cue that uh, people are hunting for these days. So there's a lot of visual interest in this watch, even though it's a simple, uh, you know, a simple kind of utility watch that they were they were giving to GIs at the PX. Um, so it's a very, you know, for 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 something that isn't that expensive, Seiko put a lot of thought into the way it looked, not just the way it functioned. Um, oh yeah, I mean, what's unique about it? If you see the underside of the case, well, you have one. It's it's not like it's you know flat with the rest of the watch. It's it's like the where the lugs are. It's kind of like concaved in, right? Yes, yeah. It, it does curve in. It makes it a very comfortable wear. Obviously, at this stage, it doesn't have the the famous Seiko wave yet. Um, that'll come later on. I believe the sixty three oh nine Turtle is where that makes its debut. Um, but in a lot of a lot of ways, you know, it's the proto proto turtle. You know, it, it, it is the proto turtle. I mean, yeah, well, one could say that. Without this, you wouldn't have the sixty three oh nine without this. And um, 
there's one other thing that's I guess Seiko's bringing back is the shovel hand second hand, right? Yeah. So the new Marine Master two hundred, uh, like the updated yes you know, reissues, have that stoplight hand, um, which is very attractive. It's very eye catching. Um, it's it's a, it's 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 such a small little detail, but it just adds a little uniqueness to the watch. That's it's for the sure. Only it's the only color in this whole watch. Everything else is monochromatic, right? Exactly. So it's very uh, Tommy, but a <laughs> pop of red. Black and white, little pop of red. But that red makes such a big difference. Uh, it does. It it actually just like stands out, and it's just the yeah. smallest little detail. Yeah. It, so it's really interesting that Seiko hasn't reissued this. I, 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 I have, you know, part of the reason I got it was, look, I think the market for vintage Seiko divers, especially ones that people would be interested in, it's, it's become a little bit crazy. So like, you know, the yeah. Captain Lord, it, you know, it's, it's been climbing up in price for years. And now that the reissues are out, a one in solid condition with relatively original parts, you know, uh, you know, it's becoming a little bit out of, out of reach for a lot of people. Um, the 62 Moss, there's so few survivors in good shape, you know, very difficult to get one. Yeah. Uh, the 6159 high beat diver, you know, complicated movement, pretty difficult to find. Um, but, you know, the skinny Willard, you know, in, in the vintage Seiko world, that is still an affordable watch to get. Um, and I see beautiful examples of people who've restored it. Um, to really good shape. So, I mean, mine was relatively, you know, affordable. It wasn't, it wasn't very expensive at all. Um, no, but one, you had to do some, some mods in the sense to, <laughs> yeah, to make it yeah. more representative, right? Like it yeah. was not like a completely mint condition. Um, yeah. was... So, so I got my watch. This specific example was from Eastern Europe. Uh, the guy was a watchmaker. He put it up on eBay. Um, so he serviced and lubricated the watch and it's the original you know, I actually sent a picture to Spencer and he said, you know, the hands are updated hands um, for, you know, what Seiko would do at a service. So it's not inconsistent with the, the skinny Willard that is consistent. Right. Um, and, you know, everything else looks fairly original. There's actually a level of loom deterioration on the dial, which I think, uh, you know, ATG was saying, uh, you know, that that's a sign of water coming in. But you know, to, to to a certain extent, that means it's got original loom on it. Um, so you know, that's something that that you can at least say that hasn't been updated and changed, and and everything else looks good. I mean, the watch is in very good shape. The dial is in beautiful shape. The, all the chrome point, the chrome surrounds for all the, the loom points are are perfectly in place, and it catches the light beautifully. You know, the hands are beautiful, and none of the loom has fallen out. So, but it has patinaed a little bit to give that vintage. Appeal, Which right? I think is awesome. You know, I yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you know, some people would strip that out or get a new dial or. Whatever. No, I would keep get, it. And don't get me wrong. I mean, a, I've seen people do that with skinny Willards, and it's a beautiful watch. It looks fantastic. But um, you know, I feel like something would be lost here because it's, it's actually a pretty good example, even with the old loom. So right, uh, I'm very happy with it. Um, so you know, long story short, um, the movement and everything was serviced and it was in good shape. Um, it had no uh, bracelet or strap or anything anything going with it, which is fine, no big deal. But the more interesting thing was that it didn't have a bezel, right? Like a insert. Um, and I was a bit naive. I was like, eh, you know, how hard could it be? <laughs> this, this the, the optimist and Tommy, you know. <laughs> it's like, 
what's the big deal? I, I could source one. So I, I got it and I, I was very happy with it. It's, it's a fantastic watch. I put it right on, uh, I, I tried it on the, on, on the NATO strap and I tried it on uh, the Forstner rivet bracelet, the stretch bracelet, and it looks awesome. But I still needed to get a bezel and bezel insert for it. So, uh, you know, started looking around, started looking around. Um, basically came up to a mod site. They have bezels and bezel inserts, but it's not built for the skinny willard. It's the actual bezel size was just slightly too big. So what mm, I did, gotcha. and I didn't know that, right? I mean, the, the guy basically running the mod site said, this should fit, you know, this is what previous people have told me works. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Did they, got it. Do yeah. you, did they tell you what it was exactly made for? Or was it, because it had to fit some other, like Seiko, whatever, watch so the uh, perfectly. So insert from, from what he told me is, is the skinny willard design gotcha okay the bezel itself apparently is not that is for the 6309 6309 gotcha okay so i mean he was under the impression it's the same size that should fit so basically you know back when you when you look at vintage seiko back then they didn't have uh you know what they would do is basically a curved piece of metal that would uh, form the tension between the groove in the in below the you know between the the bezel and right. the actual case of the watch, and it was a very precarious little you know little twenty cent piece of metal that that's doing this work, and you can bend it to the correct size, but you know this bezel was just slightly too big where I couldn't get enough tension onto that piece of bezel to fit in that lip between the case and and the bezel itself. So it kept falling off. Gotcha. And I was really, you know, at wit's end here. So it's it's not a clicking bezel anyway, you know, so it just needed to be on and it just needed to be able to turn. So, you know, I was really thinking, what could I do? All I need is a little bit of tension between the lip of the bezel and, and the case. So I was like, you know what? Let me let me try a few things. So I tried, <laughs> so I tried wire. Yep. Okay? I tried basically, um, uh, chicken coop wire that you get from the mm, Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Because all I needed was tension. So I was basically shaving, you know, making it the smallest possible wire. Uh, couldn't get it to, couldn't get it to fit and sit on correctly. Um, I tried a bunch of things. I mean, I, at a certain stage, I was like, damn it, I'll just glue this together to hell with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew you'd make fun of me for that. So I was like, okay, I can't do that. I'm then, looking, I like how I was in your thought process. Yeah, Sanj like, is going to make fun of me. Sanj is going to do is make fun of me. He's going to pull his engineer card and be like, you're an idiot. Uh, so, okay. So, you know, what did I land on? So I landed on, all right, listen to this. I landed on using uh, basically cooking twine. Oh, okay. You know, the stuff that you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Legs with when you yeah. put it in the oven. It's so pretty thin. Yeah. So what you can do is you can actually remove individual strands of the twine to get the perfect thickness. And what I did was I wrapped the twine around the bezel and was able to put the bezel onto the case. Um, and it provided, and I could adjust the thickness because I could just take a strand or two as I needed right. to and get the exact minimum amount of tension for it to be in place. And it still turns. Um, and, no, you know, no, that's I'm I'm impressed. You know, it's, it's a little MacGyvering. I'm not yeah, lie. I was literally going to say MacGyver. You MacGyver <laughs> the crap out of your watch. Well, I won't say the crap, but yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I mean, once in a while, you'll see a loose strand from that 
twine as a deteriorate. <laughs> and you just cut that off. But uh, you know, you really you really can't tell I did anything. Um, I mean, you bought this watch not as a necessarily a tool watch. You bought it more for the vintage vintageiness of it and the fact that it's it was affordable and it is something that's a little bit under the radar in this in the vintage Seiko world, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's not too under the radar. I mean, you can get, for example, you know, the bezels that I was looking for, an original bezel, you can get an original bezel. It's like close to a grand, you know? So like they, they are collectible and the prices for the skinny willard are rising. So like to get a, a, a a full example skinny willard you can you can pay over a thousand fifteen hundred close to two grand for for a good example um so you know it's not like these are very cheap mm-hmm. the reason it kind of worked out is because i did get one that mechanically was perfect dial wise was perfect it just missed them it was just missing a bezel gotcha so for me it kind of worked out otherwise i'm not sure i would have been able to swing that you know budget wise for uh, on the on a whim like that, but it was just the Goldilocks situation that I needed to kind of jump on, um, right. and I'm very happy. And the interesting thing is, I got one with the 6105B movement, mm-hmm. which is hacking. The 6105A is not hacking. So, you know, I've got a, I've, I'm quite pleased with the example that I've got. Uh, great, great power reserve. It's accurate. Never had an issue with it. Um, you know, except for testing the water and which I wouldn't jump in the pool with it because it's a vintage watch, you know, in every other sense, it could easily be a daily driver and, and you wouldn't feel anything, you know, missing from that. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, they, they're built to last. And if it's serviced and taken care of like this guy did, um, you know, they'll, they'll go for a long time. So. I mean, ultimately, the, the key bit that does work perfectly fine and, and thankfully was service was the movement, right? That thing built as a rock. Yeah, I mean that—that's the—that's the trick with vintage watches. As, as you know, I've been you know working on getting my Dugina Lamania fifty one hundred movement serviced, and it's you know this March will be a year. Okay. Yeah. Then, you know, there's a chip shortage going on. Apparently, there's a Lamania fifty one hundred shortage going on. You know, and I'm I'm still shocked, and I've mentioned like every episode I bring it up, and I'm like I can't understand how a movement that was so popular where they made, you know, thousands, if not millions of examples, and you can't find parts for it. it it's really... Can you surprising. buy a 5100 movement on eBay or something? I mean, that's an option. If I, if I could find one cheap enough in good shape, I would consider doing it because, like, they're looking for a specific uh, one part of that movement that they want to replace. It's... Uh, couldn't even tell you. I don't know. I mean, let's be real. They took your... Let's be real, Tommy. They they took your watch and made it like a chop shop, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get like individual hands, a dial. I'll get something else in the mail. Like, yeah, we we have it, and if you want it, you pony up. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, at this point, I think I'm I'm. Yeah, I mean, I should I should just tell you, I'm, I'm probably gonna pull the plug. I'm just gonna call them and be like, I'll pick it up, and then. You know, maybe just the shop has seen more of the watch than you have, and you are the oh, for real, for real. And I, and I've I've been cool about it, and you know, I know they're trying. I, I don't I don't blame them. It's, it's a vintage watch, but at a certain point, you got to be like, all right, I'll just take it back and deal with it myself. So you know, so I, I'm I'm reaching the end of the line. We'll see. I'm hoping when I call tomorrow, they'll they'll have some positive progress to report. Good. But, I mean, I I know I really hope that watch does come. In you know. I hope you can get that watch up and running because, you know, it was a watch that you personally were looking for in terms of the style, the aesthetic and 
I, lo- I love that Audi Sport, man. Yeah. You know, there was an Audi Sport, Lamania, that, uh, uh, sorry, Hoyer Audi Sport, uh, that I, I, I saw for a very reasonable price. And I sat on it. I think I sent you the link. This was like years ago. And it, it really didn't go for much higher. And I was an idiot. And uh, I deserved what I got. And I, and I lost out on it. So you know, not much has fun. changed. Not much has <laughs> changed. <laughs> but I mean, going back yeah. to the Seiko, um, are you pleased with how things have gone with this watch purchase? Honestly, it, it couldn't have gone better, right? I mean, Good. the bezel was kind of annoying. Yeah. You have to find something. But the watch itself is fantastic. And but here's the thing, though. Awesome. Like, even if you couldn't get a bezel, right, it actually looked attractive without it, you know? Yeah. It looked yeah. like a feel more of a field watch than uh I like to think what I did was like a GI Vietnam era repair. You uh, did a, a a team six style. I need to get <laughs> back in the field. I need something quick. Let's let's get on this. Let's let's, right. let's use that twine. I'm right. I'm I'm adding too much, you know, credit here by saying it's team six because <laughs> They would just wear a G-Shock. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. In in all honesty, they they wouldn't bother. But um, you know, of of the Vietnam era Seikos, you know, I think the the Captain Willard and the Skinny Willard are are are, you know obviously my favorites. Uh yeah, I know, I know the you've you've seen the uh Mac V SOG Seikos, right? The like the they're like cushion case, but they're not dive watches, they're more like field watches. Are you familiar with those, Sash? If I see it, ah, uh, let me look it up. Mac V. Mac V M A C V S O G Seiko. Yeah. Uh, what they were for were basically uh, sterile watches. They didn't have any U.S. markings on them for um, special operations group soldiers. So that when they would go into North Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos, if they were killed in action, they wouldn't have American kit on them. So this, these are supposed to be generic. Oh right, yes, yes, yes. These ones, yeah, yep. I, yeah, I, I think uh, Dan from Time, Timely Moments. Yes, he was um, mentioning yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a slew of Seiko-related watches for the Vietnam War, which is really interesting. It's not just the Captain Willard, you know. Uh, but I, I got to say, you know, the Skinny Willard has its own place, and I, I think it's it's such a unique and really beautiful design. Uh, being symmetrical, you would think it's it's a, a bit more boring than the Captain Willard, but I, I think it's it's actually really elegant and comfortable. Okay, so one last thing. Now, yes. suppose you you didn't have the Seiko Turtle, which you had for a few years, yeah. and now and suppose you didn't get the Skinny Willard, and but and Seiko released a reissue of the Skinny Willard. Would you take the Skinny Willard or the Turtle? Because there's they're similar in some aspects, especially the case, but I think the the indices, for example, being more rectangular and the hands being used, I think it's it's I would go for the skinny willard if it was a reissue. Yeah, the skinny willard has a really attractive visual kind of handset and, and dial layout. Um, you know, th- they are different. Like, you know, this is really where the Seiko madness comes into play, right? I mean, the differences are so subtle. Like I, you know, let me look up the. I just need to refresh visually what it looks like. Um, you know, I'm gonna look up the Seiko SR. So the SRP has like, you know, round. It's more roundish, in a sense, right? It's a bit. Um... The case is, I mean, the case is really, you know, it's a 6309, right? So like, it's an iteration off the Captain Willard. It's not an exactly. iteration of the Skinny Willard. 
Um, and the the hour markers, or sorry, the minute markers are round and you know, you've got that sword on, on at 12. It's a bit different from what the skinny wheeler was, uh, which is obviously rectangular minute markers. Um, and I don't know how to describe it, but it, it's, is it a rhombus at 12? <laughs> I, <laughs> I have to go back to, I have to go back to school to think about what that shape is, but you know, it's, it's a, one, two, three, four, five. It's a it's a five-sided shape, but not a pentagon. Um, yeah, so it's it's very different visually. But uh, I mean, it's difficult to say. You know, they, they kind of bring their own thing. Um, you know, to to the fore. So I don't know if one's a replacement for the other. Um, the, the only drawback to the SRP seven seven five is that twenty-two millimeter lugs. You know, I, I at this stage find them to be too wide. I just can't. Yeah, 22 is a bit on the rarer scale. It's big, you know, and I find it to be strange. The interesting thing is, you know, it was early in my watch collecting days when I bought it. So I, I to me, that was normal. But, you know, as, as you wear things more on the 20 side, it starts to feel like, well, why is this so wide and heavy? Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, you know, I, I the, the Seiko Turtle is a classic. It's not expensive. I feel like every, you know, watch collector should have one um it's just a beautiful watch and if you put that on like i don't know like a tropic strap or something it's it's really attractive and, and comfortable to wear uh you can really beat the crap out of it so well uh, you know, you're what you're trying to what you're trying to say is that i should get a seiko turtle i really think you should i mean i have one friend of the pod roy t has one he actually has the same one i do the uh, 775 um and there are so many iterations. I feel like you know you really can't miss. The thing is um, that I I really like the Samurais. Like you and I have one, right? The SRP07. Yeah. It's just yeah. got a lot more detail and and features to it. Like the, especially the dial. You know, it's got that waffle grid pattern to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and things like that. And I actually do like the angular aspect of the watch. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, the t- it's attractive, but I also find that 22 millimeters there, right, is is a little bit too much. That's, yeah, I can see that's that. My main drawback to that, it's like I like I love that watch. I, I think it's great, but like I just find the the wide um, the wideness of those lugs to be just distracting. You know? Yeah. Um, do me a favor, okay? Go to your Google. I'm assuming you're you're in front of your computer. I am in front of my computer. Is that a big assumption. Okay. Uh, type in R D U N A E Vintage Turtle. R D U N A E N A E Redune. I don't know. These Chinese companies, I don't know what, how they name their product. You know, that's what your, um, the shop that has your Duginas, they're, they're coordinating with Redune, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get back a Redune. Um, and yeah. Yeah. To, these are actually not bad. Yeah. It's, it's got double reflective uh, coating, I believe. That's actually rare. I mean, AR reflective coating. It's got an NH35 Seiko movement. So you got a Seiko ticking on the inside. Um, sapphire crystal, aluminum bezel insert, and, you know, 19 millimeter lug width. So it's the same lugs as the ori- you know, original skinny Willard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very attractive. I, I think they've done a very good job reproducing that look. I, I think it's really cool, you know? And you're getting this for, listen to the price 200 bucks on sale. That's I mean, yeah, you can't beat that. How do you beat that? I, I don't understand why Seiko didn't do this. You know, I mean, 
they could have taken two routes to it, right? They could have gone the Seiko Turtle route, something inexpensive, rel- you know, relatively inexpensive, who will retail eventually for 200 or 300 bucks. Right. Or they could have gone, you know, the Captain Willard route and done a full reissue for a couple grand and maybe STB, you know, reinterpretations for 800 bucks or whatever. But they should have done something, you know? Like if a company can do this much and sell it for 200 bucks and still stay in business, you know, I, I don't understand why Seiko can't do anything with it. Um, you know what? It's going to be like in next week, they're just going to release the skinny Willard and you'll be like, they listen to me, guys. (laughs) You know, I, yeah, it's very strange, but you know, the 50th anniversary came and went for it. So like, I don't know what they're waiting for, Um, but it's, it's interesting that throughout the years, right. Seiko has done reissues and reinterpretations, blah, 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 blah. They've never touched this model. And I, I feel like it's right to do it. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of the curve. Or I'm completely out to lunch and they know something I don't. Uh, and I don't know what it is. Uh, a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Bit All of right. Of but, um, All right. Yeah. So, yeah, it, you know, so long story short, uh, if you're looking for a vintage Seiko, a vintage Seiko diver, Skinny Willard is a great option, the 6105-8000. Um, if you want one uh, with modern specs and for 200 bucks, uh, check out the Rudune. Um, uh, Spencer Klein himself has given his blessing for it. Um, and it does have a Seiko ticking on the inside. So it's not a complete uh, betrayal of the brand. It's a watch to look like a Seiko, has a heart of a Seiko, but it's not a Seiko. But not a Seiko, right. And they got a guilt version sent. I don't know if you saw the guilt take on it. But you, love that- guilt. you love you guilt. Like guilt. You love I'm guilt. I'm not a big fan of guilt. You're like gold member. You love gold. You love gold guilt. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm talking the Austin Powers version. Yeah, I know what you said, and I just ignored it. I chose it. <laughs> All right. So I do have a watch you're buying. And, wow. it's, and it's actually a watch that we covered way back last year in episode 27. Oh, and we covered this watch. Okay. We covered this watch. Um, it's the Belova A15 Pilot, um, and it's available on Joma Shop for three hundred bucks. Wow! So when we covered it, it was the retail price was six hundred twenty-five bucks or something like that. It's available on Belova the Wayne website for five hundred fifty-six, and but on Joma Shop, it's like three ten. It's it's to me that's a bit of a bit of a good deal yeah yeah so you can't beat that and you know just to give a little back of the watch in particular you know it's 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 a revival slash you know a homage to the original belova watches that was issued to the air force in 1944 so it was used in world war ii yeah um and it's got a uniqueness where there's two rotating bezels, one for the minutes and the other for the hours. So you can kind of use it as a pseudo GMT or like a 12 hour chronograph. Interesting. Yeah, um, it's hard to see in the pictures, but there are two rings that you can kind of rotate it around. Oh, I see it. Okay, yeah. so like there are two bezel rings. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Chapter um, ring. Exactly. Um, so it's powered by the Miyota movement. Um, I guess if there's any downsides, it's probably, it's supposedly has a weak loom and it's only water resistant to 30 meters, but it's perfectly it's, fine. It's, it's historically accurate. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's perfectly, 
for an everyday watch, you know, the case is about 42 millimeters. It's perfectly wearable for everyday use. Yeah. So, I mean, it's for 300 bucks. This is actually a really good deal. That's, yeah, you know, uh, I got to say for the price, it's, it's, it's compelling. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say about it. I, I think and and it, it satisfies your, um, your strap requirements because it is a 20 millimeter strap. So it's perfect. Oh, thank God. Yeah. I mean, Belova, you know, they're all over the place. You know, sometimes they're, the watches are so oversized and like offensively so. I can't. Kind of like Hamilton at times. It's bizarre. Tag Heuer does the same thing. You know, it's so yeah. bizarre and I don't understand why they keep doing it. And, you know, maybe it's just you and I have tiny little wrists, but I feel like we're relatively normal. And I don't know who these massive watches, these hubcaps are for. Yeah, know? the so, Carreras are huge. So some of them, right? Like 45 it's millimeters. Insane. It's insane. It's like wearing a hubcap or like, you know, it looks ridiculous. So, uh, you know, I don't know how this is going to wear, but if it's not terribly ridiculously sized, um, you know, we're going to take that as a win. Yeah. So this is a thumbs up for you, Tommy? You know what? I, I think it's a thumbs up. It's different. It's not too expensive. It's you know, got that World War II themed thematic to it since it's yeah, like I mean, a homage. You, know, you, you can also get a Redune, but yeah, I mean, if you want to do a Bulova, go for it. Listen, what's you <laughs> and Redune? <laughs> oh, all right. All right. Oh, yeah, good. Good compelling buy, Sanj. All right. Are we off to our streaming gold pick? Yes, and we're going to be talking about the Schumacher documentary, which was released on Netflix on the 15th of September. Yeah. And yeah, you, yeah. so you saw it and I saw it. What do you think of it? So I, I really liked it. Um, what I did think of it was, listen, right, you know, let, let, let's get it out of the way first and foremost. Um, I'm going to compare any racing documentary to Senna. And I think that Schumacher was made with that documentary in mind. Like it, 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 it hit all the same kind of high points. It, it, it even had Ayrton Senna in it. You know, it had the full arc and, you know, where, where you know, no spoilers, but where, where Senna passes away at the end of it. That's not a spoiler. It's well documented. It happened. Right. Mike, Michael Schumacher has his accident and, you know, that, that, that becomes the end of the story. But, you know, uh, you know, the rise of a young racer and the world championships, it's, it's almost, I don't want to say beat for beat like Senna, but it, it did remind me a lot of that movie, you know, not, not topic wise, but just the way it's structured and the way it kind of approached the subject. Right. Um, but I thought it was very interesting. Like, obviously, I don't know, you know, anything about Schumacher compared to what you you would know of being a racing fan. So, um, you know, could I really say that this was accurate or a complete story? You know, no movie is going to be that way. I mean, it always be painful. So I can tell you it's fairly accurate. Um, it is fairly accurate. Okay. I mean, everything is accurate in that. I mean, there's, there's no one denying it. Um, so I thought it was also a good documentary, um, well put together and to the newbie, like yourself, because you're not familiar with, with Schumacher, um, you know, it, it kind of go, goes from the beginning till the end. Um, it touches a little bit on the sports car racing, but he did sports car racing before he joined formula one. Um, yeah, he was a Mercedes driver, right? He was a Mercedes driver. Yes. Um, but, you know, Formula One was where he gained much of his success, obviously. Um, yeah. 
but I think they could have done better in some aspects. And I'm just going to break down into a few things. First of all, I mean, we should before I get to that, we should appreciate that, you know, you know, Senna did not come from like a rich uh, family or, you know. Schumacher, you said Senna. Sorry. Oh, oh, sorry. Schumacher did not come from a, a well-to-do family. You know, a dad was, a, I think it was a bricklayer who then owned the track in Kirpin, which I'm going to touch base on that at the very end. And his and his mom was, I think, running the canteen over there. So, you know, yeah. yeah. and when he started racing go-karts, they were using used parts, whatever they could find or, or search for. Like, you know, he would win with the used tires, you know. Yeah. But, um once he got hold of his manager for the longest time, Willie Weber, that's when his trajectory and took off as far as sponsorship and getting into the higher, you know, formula classes and things like that. Yeah. Um, so let me tell about the positives. I think they really touched well on certain things when he was at Ferrari, because when he joined Ferrari in 1996, uh, that team was a bit of a mess. In shambles. Yeah. A bit of a shambles. I mean, but, you know, Ferrari wanted to rebuild completely. So they, you know, this might sound a little controversial, but they basically like plucked all the good people from the Benetton team that Schumacher was off, you know, yeah. uh, for example, Ross Braun and I believe Rory Byrne, I don't, who was the engine designer or the one of the chief designers. No, no. Rory Byrne wasn't the engine designer. He was one of the chief designers of the car. I think he also came from Benetton too. And then Schumacher signed in 1996. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they had to start from basically scratch. But, you know, what this, the document really shows is his work ethic. Like he was insane, you know, spending 12 hours a day <laughs> testing and analyzing. Like, you know, he would go to great lengths. Like they would do for his fitness, you know, they would do you do a blood draw before um, a test and a blood draw after a test, or I think even during races, and to see what the composition of the blood was. And that way they can assess what dietary needs would be optimal for him. Wow. Yeah. Is this later in his career or is this when he's like just starting in Ferrari? Uh, probably during that era of like the early years of Ferrari. Wow. That's, that's pretty mental. Yeah, like he was dedicated to his profession. That's and yeah. and he, he had an, an incredible amount of talent. I mean, his talent was you know up there with Senna. Yeah. Um, and his driving style was completely different, obviously, but um, he had a really good natural feel for the car. How would you characterize his driving style versus Senna? So the main obvious characteristic is the throttle application. So whenever you hear Senna, if you see a cockpit overview or, or maybe, you know, at a corner, several corners, Senna was always very, you know, uh, digital with the pedal. Like he would go pop, 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 pop. Yeah, like, he was very touching. Yeah. Yeah. Very uh, like tapping as if he was tap dancing, you know? Yeah. And there was some theory as to why he did that. You know, some say it was during the turbo era when Senna joined Formula One kind of yeah. keep the boost up going but some say it was probably just how he raced in go-karts so it was a natural development of his driving style yeah. Schumacher was basically very fine detail very fine detail on the pedal application um, he would learn how to apply the pedal the throttle uh, and when to let go and he would basically carry as much speed into the corner by minimal inputs on the throttle pedal and and just being as 
holding on to dear life basically with the steering. So if you see certain corners, if you see the traces, like his pad, throttle pad, pedal is very smooth, but his yeah. steering angle was like very noisy because he was just at the very absolute limit. Wow. So very different styles, but both of them were flat out. Um, yeah. But so that was one cool thing, the testing era of Schumacher, you know, like he would dedicate to, to get the Ferrari up and running as quick as possible because back then you can do as much testing as much uh, as much as you wanted and ferrari definitely made use of that because they have their own track at their headquarters in fiorano so yeah. that was cool to see but i think they just missed out on some of his other epic um moments with ferrari like for example they covered 1996 the spanish grand prix where he would like just dominate in the wet yeah. um but they didn't capture for example hungary 1998 where he was told to do like 20 qualifying laps to beat Hakkinen and he did it. He's like, he took it as a challenge. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. Um, another one, which you may or may not know was 2003 San Marino Grand Prix. It was the weekend when his mother died. So mm. they had no idea. Initially he was unsure whether he would even compete, but if I remember correctly, his mom said even like her last like dying breath. He's like, go race it is your destiny that sort of thing right yeah. so he raced uh, right after his mom died and he won the race wow. so mm. they didn't talk about that um and they kind of brushed aside on his mercedes era which to be fair wasn't that much it wasn't as successful as it would have been but he also built that team up to the way in a sense he was instrumental in the early phase of that team the team that is it that it is now right because right. they've won seven championships in a row. I mean, you can't right. beat that. So right. overall, a really good documentary. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here because you you know the you know the history more than I do. But like, you know, I for me, I, I think I'm a Senna team Senna person. What, what side are you on? Are you? Are you a I'll always be team. I mean, I always, you know, kind of was always on Senna because he had a mystique to him, like a. Yeah. He was like a, a like poet. A magician, you know? Yeah, he was like a poet. Yeah. You know? That 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 comeback, you know, after he crashes with Prost and they have to change the front of his car and he, he comes back to win the race. I mean, that that is the stuff of superheroes, you know. So, oh, I mean, <laughs> he and Senna Schumacher had a lot of similarities. You know, a bit of ruthlessness, the the dedication to their craft, but also like their they they both Senna like publicly admitted it that he had a God given right to win like that was this mentality but schumacher yeah. wasn't the same mentality like the battles like i remember watching the battles with hacking in in the like 98 99 2000 those are for some really good battles how many how many times was hacking in world championship, championship? hacking in was world champion 98 99 and then 2000 it was a really tight battle and i feel like i think schumacher's greatest championship in my opinion was probably 2000 because that was yeah. a really good battle. And um, that was the one that, you know, he was waiting for to win. Had, he, had Senna lived, do you think that Schumacher would have would have reached that height? Or would, would he have also been pushed aside by Senna, no matter, you know, what his age? It's hard to say, right? I mean, Senna Schumacher was, was kind of like what, you know, what you're seeing now. Kind of like what Max Verstappen and, and Lewis Hamilton Um 
But yeah. I mean, Senna would have been champion if you if you were to just go by the way Williams have performed. Yeah. I mean, 1994, you know, Hill and Schumacher, they went neck and neck till the last race. Some say maybe Senna would have taken that one. 95, it was a landslide. You know, Schumacher dominated that one, if I remember correctly. 96, yeah. Hill was world champion. So if Senna stayed, he may have been world champion again. And then 97, yeah. it was Jacques Villeneuve. Wilfo Williams, but we don't know because it's hard to say. Yeah, it's a complete theoretical. It's all theoretical, you know. They're all, you know, greats in their own right. I mean, it's kind of like the passing of the torch, you know. Yeah. You had at that time, you know, before Senna it was Prost, then it was Senna, then it was Schumacher, and then the the next era, in my opinion, was the Hamilton era. Yeah. Oh well, no, you had the Vettel era, and then you had the Hamilton era. So it's to me Schumacher's a top three all-time great who are the other two uh Senna and Hamilton gotcha um but I feel like it they rushed on certain things and you know there was another aspect of it too like the 1998 spa where it talks about where like Schumacher got like really mad at David Coulthard if you remember he went into the garage and like was about to beat the guy up yeah so that race, it was a Jordan 1-2 victory, and it was Damon Hill who won the race, followed by Ralph Schumacher, who was Michael Schumacher's brother. Yeah. And there was team orders in place so that Jordan can get the 1-2 victory because, you know, it was wet conditions, and there was a risk of taking each other out, which would have been a disaster, right? Yeah. So if I remember correctly, uh, Michael Schumacher was very mad at that. And he basically bought out Ralph Schumacher's contract. Just like, I'm going to, if you ever do that again, I'm going to buy my brother out. And then I think Eddie Jordan, who was the owner of Jordan F1 at the time, he's like, okay, but you have to pay X amount of dollars. And Schumacher apparently paid it off. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, you want, I mean, what I also liked about it is that Schumacher was also a very private man in his private life. Yeah. He definitely kept his family away from like the media. Yeah. So, and it shows. So Um, would you recommend Schumacher? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can spend another two podcasts on this. (laughs) (laughs) I know you could. That's why I signed it to you. (laughs) So, well, yeah, good. Yeah. I would recommend it too. I think it's fantastic. Um, Especially if you're a fan of the movie Senna, Uh, you know, I think it hits a lot of the similar beats and, uh, it's uh, obviously, you know, uh, a one-time rival of Senna's and, you know, it, it's worth watching. It's, yeah, I find it really interesting, even though I know very little yeah. about racing from that era. It's nice to see that his son is now in Formula One, Mick Schumacher. Mick. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Yeah, I guess the most, like, like heartbreaking bit was the very end where they interview his son. Yeah. He's like, I would give it up all, everything, just to spend one day talking to my dad about motorsport. Yeah. Because we all know that Schumacher had the skiing incident in 2013, which yeah, forever changed him. Coma and, yeah. No one knows what his real condition is, and it's you know fair to say that I read that presumably he's he is awake, but in in a state where he's not really able to communicate or yeah. do anything. That's what I. So he's not no longer in a coma, but he's no longer in a coma, anyway. but he's no longer he's no longer the same person. You know. Yeah. This guy has, you know, carried, you know, went 180 miles an hour on, you know, Eau Rouge in Belgium, never had an issue. 
he had that crash in 1999, the British Grand Prix, where he broke his leg. You know, he barreled, you know, that was a 150 mile an hour corner. The brakes, yeah. something happened. Still no issue. Came back a few months later. But it's so sad, like a skiing, yeah. skiing accident out of all things that changed yeah. his life forever. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely check out Schumacher. I think it's fantastic. Uh, definitely worth a watch. All right. So is it my turn? Last, it is your turn. Last topic of the night. So um, it's actually a podcast from the Angry Planet podcast. Uh, it's called The Drones of the Vietnam War. Um, so, you know, we've, we've obviously drones have been in the news, I think, since really 9-11. Right, Sanj? I mean, the whole predator program has been front of front and center of the war on terror. And you know, everyone knows what a predator drone is and, you know, what it does. But you know, would you be surprised to know that, you know, more than 35, 40 years before that, the military is already using drones in Vietnam? Really? Yeah. Without, so, you know, the, this was basically by a company called Ryan Teledyne, and they were using something called a Model 147 drone. Um, right. This was a drone that was originally designed as target practice for pilots right uh, and sam operators they would basically take pot shots at this uh, drone and try to shoot it down um, and then after the u2 crashed um, in cuba and then also you know um, in russia during the eisenhower administration there was discussion of hey you know it sucks to lose pilots doing this is there any way we can make this unmanned and the Ryan Aerospace Company started to work on that. And what they came up with was converting one of their target drones into a photo reconnaissance drone. And, and it's not as simple as you think, right? Because it's not like you have you know, remote control like you have today. It's not like you have uh, satellite feeds. It's not like it's right. alive. Uh, basically, you have to you know, weave, like you know, similar to the um, Apollo- A computer, computer. a guidance computer. <laughs> where you had to literally weave the the programming into the computer you needed to have someone every mission you would have a team of computer programmers who would weave the commands to the drone um, and basically you'd have one person doing the weaving one person doing the checking uh, for the coordinates for the turns and you know when the camera should be on when the camera should be off everything has to be programmed down to the down to the bit you know, and then you've got to launch the drone at the perfect exact spot that you planned for the operation to start. And the drone will, you know, autonomously do this kind of circuit, take pictures. And basically what would happen is the drone drone would crash. They would program the drones. So, you know, they were used extensively over Vietnam. Um, obviously, North Vietnam at that time was heavily defended, probably yes. the most defended airspace in the world. So flying over North Vietnam was extremely dangerous. So uh, you know, they were running missions where, you know, a mothership, uh, a, a, you know, I think it was a C-130, a converted C-130 would drop this drone. It would, you know, shoot into North Vietnam, take its photos, and then basically they would, they would program it to go crash somewhere in Taiwan. Gotcha. And they would send a, a air crew to go, you know, basically recover the drone and take out the, you know, the photographs. and The film, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, it's extremely analog, but you know this was actually a very widely used program. I, I, I've never heard of it. I thought drones were something relatively new in warfare when it came out, um, you know, during the war on terror. But uh, you know, my mind was blown that this thing was actually, you know, this 
program existed in the Vietnam War and um, how extensive and how um, how routine it was. You know, they they were yeah. using this uh, on a regular basis to do uh, to do reconnaissance. Um, so it's a really interesting podcast. It's actually really interesting on who was the guy who behind it, who thought of the drone program and who who led it and kind of how that operated in Vietnam. Um, it's really fascinating. It's by the Angry Planet series, uh, so I'd highly recommend it. Something, something kind of different. Nice. No, cool. I, I really am curious to see what the uh, these drones are all about. So yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. Yeah, the, um, the Ryan One Forty Seven. It's uh, it's it's actually in in a bunch of uh, museums right now. Uh, there's a, quite a few surviving examples. Um, but yeah, really, really blew me, blew me away that they could do this before satellites and before digital technology. You know. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, well, I did forget one thing. Going back to the Schumacher documentary, I swear it's only a minute. But I did say about the the the, the family go kart track. There's a connection. Yeah. So that go kart track was eventually was originally built by a racing driver Wolfgang von Trips. Yeah. Who at the time was racing for Ferrari. Oh wow. Yeah. So came full circle. A little bit of full circle. Full circle. Unfortunately, Wolfgang von Trips died in a race in Monza, um, 1961. Yeah. Um, and then Phil Hill won the championship then. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where where Formula One was super scary to drive. You know, he had a collision just before this. The old Monza embankment was like like a really steep embankment before yeah. that entry crashed and bounced and went and killed 15 spectators so lord i think there was a reenactment not in a somewhat of a fashion in the movie grand prix oh okay with Uh, um james garner yes yes and i think that was also ferrari driver as well but anyways long story short yes he opened a track in kirpin germany and eventually was leased out by the schumacher family that's awesome. Wow. Really, really, really interesting full circle story there. Back to Ferrari. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, all right. Well, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Land Jam. Uh, I guess it's a Land Jam short. Um, until next time. Thanks.